Welcome all to another episode of the MusicCast podcast. Today, Marissa and I are joined with Dr. Amanda Draper. Dr. Draper, thank you for being on and up in the morning for us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, I was wondering if you could start by just giving us a little bit of a, a little rundown of who you are, like what brought you to where you are in music and where you are currently, just for our listeners. Sure. Um, I am an assistant professor of music education at Indiana University. Um, I came to higher education by way of elementary general music. So I taught um, elementary general in mostly in Chicago public schools for about 12, 13 years, something like that, before I um, started working in higher education. Um, I uh, Most of my research and most of my work primarily lives in the world of like music and special education, music and disability studies. Um, I primarily, like my area of interest within that is primarily with autism. And I came to that like totally accidentally. I um, I don't have a family member who uh, identifies on the autism spectrum. I don't have any children with that, which is a little bit, I think, unusual. Uh, oftentimes people come to this work because of someone they know. Um, and I guess in that way, I came to this work because of lots of students that I know. I fell into teaching in a school. My, I student taught in a school for students with um, behavioral and emotional disorders, um, kind of accidentally. I wasn't supposed to be there, but I accidentally ended up there. Um, and then um, in my first teaching job, I taught in a school that had a placement for students with autism. Um, and I... I tell this story a lot that on my first day of teaching, I, I had no idea what autism was. Like I had all of these kindergartners in my first class and we like had this great magical day and there were all of these grownups in the room with me. And I was like, this is awesome. Am I always going to have all these adults in the room with me while I'm teaching kindergarten? Like everyone made this sound like it was going to be way harder than it was. And they were like, no, 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 no. I mean, like, yes, we will always be here because we come with these three students. And I was like, oh, all right, that's cool. Why? And they were like, well, they have autism. And I was like, oh, okay, that, okay, well, we'll see you next time. And then when they left, I had to Google what autism was because I'd never heard of it. Um, and in a lot of ways that sort of was beneficial for me because I didn't have any expectation or any sort of preconceived notion about what that meant for the students. So um, I can remember particularly early in my career, I would, I would like plan things and ask my students to do things that other people would be like, they can't do that. And I'd be like, well, you know, let's just see what happens. And a lot of times they could, you know, like in a lot of cases, it was sort of everybody else's notions of what the students wouldn't be able to do that were limiting them way more than um, their particular diagnoses. So that kind of ultimately over the years kind of became part of the work that I did. I When I moved to Chicago, the school in Chicago that I was in similarly accidentally ended up being a school for students with an autism placement. And I did a lot of work um, with one of the special education teachers, that special education teacher that was in that school um, that was in charge of that program. Um, in part because I found out after I got there that a lot of those students weren't being allowed to come to music. They weren't having an opportunity to, um, to come because we didn't have enough adult support. So eventually I started like pulling them in during my prep period, or I would like push into their classroom so that they would get like 20 or 30 minutes of music every once in a while. And eventually that I was able to make that part of my 
Uh-oh. Oh, but I can't hear you, Kevin. Sorry. She, her that's internet okay. must have gone, and that's totally fine. Okay. So I'm, so good. Yep, I'm going to hit record. And then we'll be totally right fine. back on track. And when okay. she comes back, we'll be totally good. So, All right, super. Do you have to do well. anything with the YouTube stream also? No, it says it's still up, so it should be it should be totally okay. fine. I think we're doing All right, good. super. All right, um, great. Um, let's see. So, oh, anyway, so I ended up doing a lot of work with the students with um, this, this program for students with autism. And eventually I like created a whole class for them. So they were able to come to music once a day. So I got them every single day for 45 minutes, which was like the best part of my teaching career probably ever. Like I loved it so much. I get to see so much growth. Like truly, if you could ever have any class every single day with your students, like they learn so much more than if you just see them once a week for like 25 minutes. Um, and it was a, such a really cool thing and really got me interested in how we work with individuals with disabilities and like what that looks like in our classrooms. And so um, when I did my master's work, um, I did my master's in like a four summer master's program with really no intention to go into higher education. I really was getting a master's degree because it was like the next step in the thing. But I was so intrigued by the research. I really got sort of like fell in love with the idea of doing research. And I was so surprised that there was nobody who was doing this research, particular to students with disabilities in music education. There's so very, there's just a really limited amount of research in that area. And it was really, I was surprised by it. And I, I felt like when I was finishing my master's degree, I could go back into my classroom and do good work in my classroom for my students. Or if I continued to sort of follow and pursue this research space, maybe I could do even more good in a bigger way. And so I left the classroom, did my PhD work, and that brought me here, which I, the only thing that's like sad about it is I really, really miss being in a classroom all the time with kids. Like I miss that so much, but I love, I love the research. I love the opportunities to meet new teachers and have them see how excited they are about this work and have an opportunity to sort of um, influence how they think about the future of teaching when it comes to individuals who we don't, who are not typically developing, which has its own like ball of wax with it for sure. Why did, by chance, do you, um, do you have your own kind of idea of why there was such a gap in research uh, at the time when you left? What do you think it was because people weren't paying as much attention to it or is it, was it something that was more coming to the forefront of people's mind at the time? I think it's a good question. Um, I, it, it's, I think it's a little bit of both. So in, when you think of like the grand scheme of research, like Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that's what we know it now, but the original one, um, the original labeling of it was like 1975, which, you know, that's still 60 years, 70 years now almost at this point of time that we could have been doing that research. And it's had like some ups and downs. There have definitely been some times where a lot of research was done for a chunk of time and then it sort of tapered off. Um, based on my own experience, I think a part of it is because it's very hard to do that research. Um, getting the access to working with students with disabilities is like, there is a lot of hoops that have to be jumped, um, a lot of red tape and as there should be, you know, it, it should be the case that, um, you know, we're really careful about who is, who is there and we're, we're making sure that they are 
um, doing that work in a way that is respectful and safe for those students. So I think that that's some of it. I do think um, it, it is not everybody's interest, right? And that a lot of that sort of comes back to the marginalization of individuals with disabilities more broadly. Like it's not that people aren't interested, but for a lot of people, like they've never really been confronted to thinking about it to become interested in it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about like my, my own high school experience as a musician, I went to a very, very small high school. And as a musician, I don't remember there being any individuals with disabilities really hardly in my school. I know that they were there and now I can look back and I know that they were like sort of kept in like a separate area of the school. Like they didn't really freely move about the building. They weren't freely included in most of the spaces. And so I I don't think it becomes a question that people ask unless it's something that they've been confronted with, which is why you often see people doing this work who have children who have disabilities or they have a family member who's experienced it because it's something that they have previous experience with. So I think that that, I mean, that's total supposition. Like I, I don't have any sort of like data on that at all, but I think that that, that would be my feeling about it, particularly the piece about not the access piece. I was surprised by how hard the access piece was when I was working on my dissertation. I was like, I got this. I'm going to be done like so fast. It took me, I think, um, one of the studies and my dissertation had three studies in it that were all pertinent to individuals with disabilities. And the second study, the one that most recently I had that was published most recently, that one, I think in order to get access to a school to do that study, I reached out to something like 40 or 50 different teachers in schools Wow! in order to get the access. I, I, I baked all- a lot of cookies. <laughs> I guess also if it's something that there's not traditionally research done in and it is something so personal and near and dear, people would question. It's not as commonplace as research studies that would happen elsewhere. So, yeah, for sure. The one thing that you mentioned that was very interesting to me is you said you you got to a certain point where you you started to have kind of a pullout class where you would you would go push into classrooms and have 20 or 30 minutes with students with disabilities in terms of inclusionary that's totally fine in terms of the inclusionary side of things versus pushing into those classrooms what are the do you find a benefit in being able to to have a push in and have a class that is solely students with disabilities that's a good question um and i will tell you truthfully my thinking has changed on this even since i did that um since i did that course so um I did that initially because of like resources. We didn't have the space and, um, or not the space, we didn't have the, like the staff support. So I couldn't have, I think that at one point there were like probably nine students in that self-contained classroom. And um, many of them needed one-on-one support at that time in order to be successful in the setting. And at the time, uh, maybe my thinking hasn't changed entirely. At the time, there are there are things that I could do with them in that self-contained setting that I couldn't do when they were in an inclusion setting. I was able to work more directly with them one-on-one. I was able to, to give them more individualized support to kind of help them grow musically. And I could tailor the content to the class in a way that 
um, was more engaging for them, I think, um, for that population, for those particular students. One of the cool things about that program is that for all of those students for whom it was appropriate, I saw them every day in that setting. And then I also saw them in an inclusion setting. So they would come also then with their typically developing peers. I like hate that term, sorry. They would come with their peers to um, come in during like their classroom music class. Uh, what was cool about that is that I could work on things with them in their self-contained setting that then they could bring into the inclusion setting and be more successful with their peers. Um, so in that way, like that was the dream model for me. Um, it, I think from a broader perspective, and when I say that my thinking has changed on it, I think what I, what I think about now, if I had the chance to do it again, is I really think that there's a lot of importance in creating spaces that are, I like this word expansive, not inclusive, but expansive, where we really change the idea of what is what it means to have like a traditional music classroom so that it is welcoming to a larger variety of individuals. Um, I, it wouldn't have solved my staffing issues, um, but I think it would, I, I would frame my classes differently now, even though I, I, I felt like I was trying to do that then. I think there are things that I've learned even since then that I would do differently now to create spaces where more individuals are welcome and, and successful in those spaces. I think we do a disservice when we create self-contained classrooms to a certain degree because it sort of perpetuates this marginalization, right? Um, it even it the implicit message is that the music that music, that music education is different than music education for everyone else in the school. And it really is to me my responsibility to not only teach music, but also help my students recognize that diversity is, is lots of things and that we should be working towards like an openness to all that diversity and all of those different learning styles. Um, I recognize also that like theoretically that sounds magical when you have 45 students in front of you and you're the only music teacher and there are 45 kindergartners, like, you also have to be reasonable. So I think it's a balance and it's something that I'm always, now it's something that I'm really thinking a lot about how, how can we like believe this and how can I hold these beliefs and these truths and how can I also make them happen in practice given the structures and the challenges of the educational system as they are now. I was curious because we have, we are at our school, I'm at a high school, I'm a band director at the high school and we have, I would say maybe between choir, orchestra, and band, we have three or four students with disabilities that are in our ensembles and work with the students. And the students at the high school level are remarkable and they're so cooperative and they're positive. But what we've also realized is when we have dress rehearsals for concerts, the rest of, we do have that kind of the, the separate room and they're isolated and they have their one-on-one -on -one aids. Um, the learning support students, that's the, they'll call it the learning support classroom. They bring them in for the dress rehearsals and they love it, but we never see them except for those. So we're kind of in conversation right now too. We won't, it won't be offered as a traditional class, but we're trying to make space in one of our music teachers schedules for next year. And they have a class period that every other day will be 
just a period of music or use part of that time for the learning support students. Um, and that, uh, so I was curious because it's one of those where it's felt like a shortcoming that we don't have that in the schedule, but I was wondering if it was a shortcoming or wasn't. So it helps to hear the pros and cons of the, the push in or the uh, inclusionary idea. I feel like you are like in this great sweet spot and we're probably way off book now. Sorry. Um, but what happens every time we get like this far and we've answered one question. That's awesome. All right. Great. So um, I think there's like, you have this really great opportunity now. Um, it might be more like an adaptive music program. So that would be, you know, sort of like the terminology for it, um, where you, particularly in the first year. So you're getting to know those students and like, what are their musical strengths and what are, what are they interested in musically that you can continue to grow and support for them. And there's an opportunity for that class to not necessarily just be like an adaptive class, but maybe it can be like a reverse inclusion class. So the ensemble, you maybe have music students or students who are not in your traditional ensembles but are interested in music who become part of that class and work as peer mentors and um, build these relationships with the students to help support them musically. And it really has, I, I, I have like a study, it's like sitting out here just as soon as I have like a few minutes to like pull it together and find all the places. But I would love to see a program that does something like that, where you have this reverse inclusion program um, and you build these peer mentorships where it's um, like an even peer setting. So everyone is trained as a peer mentor. It's not as though like the students who, I, who don't have a disability are the peers for the students who are, but instead everyone is a peer. Everyone is like valued for their contributions. Um, there's a really cool study that came out of, uh, I think it's out of the UK. I'd be happy to share it with you if you're interested where they did that in a school where everybody, um, all of the individuals were peer buddies. And it was so cool to see what it did for the individuals who identified these students all identified with autism and the students without diagnoses because they both took really like growth benefits and they both found a lot of value out of it. The students without diagnoses also really began to see their peers with autism as like being able to make valuable contributions in a way that they hadn't recognized before. That's a big, that, that to me is like, that's the big win when we kind of begin to sort of even that playing field a little bit. We're, I'm excited for you. We're not quite, we're, we have a few things, stepping stone process. One of the other big things that's happening in our district is they're trying to implement the, the whole career pathways idea where we try and get students ready. And um, they're starting it with the music program. But one of the things we did mention is the benefit of this class is we have so many offerings. We have an early education kind of daycare program that works in our, our high school where the high school students get to work with the younger students. And then if we worked on this kind of adaptive music program, we could have students that are interested in music therapy and music education, and we could actually pull them out of their classes and put them there. So we're, we're not far off of that idea. I think it's just um, we've noticed a gap in what we don't have, but the gap is wide enough that it's we're just trying to figure out where to start filling it because it's a it's a big gap. Yeah. Yeah. So um Cool. I was just curious of the, the classroom and the push-in because that's, I think that's the most, that's the thing we're most excited for, for next year, trying to get going and working. Yeah, that's exciting. Listen, if you need somebody to come out there and help you, you let me know. 
I certainly will. That's my favorite kind of thing. Careful what you wish. For. I might hold you no, to. You, you be careful what you wish for. Okay. If I end up in a room and they say, "All right, you're in charge of this," we'll be I love it. Right, there you go. Kevin, so you want to give us a speaking moment a shot, or <laughs> I know your your internet's been rough. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good moment to pivot, actually, because we were talking about gaps. Um, what is the state of like pre-service training on something like this specifically for music educators? Because I'm thinking back to my training, part of which I'm still kind of, you know, in as a PhD student, but um, truly as like an undergrad, we didn't get any of this. We got like a very, like maybe a class or two and that was about it. And, um, you know, what are your thoughts on trying to eliminate that gap in the pre-service world as well? That's like, I feel like it's like the hill that I'm going to die on. Like, I, I hear you. It's so totally true. I mean, like I told you the story, I, I had an undergraduate degree and had walked out of there not having ever heard of what autism was, which is like now to me is, I mean, like that wouldn't happen now because the world is a lot more advanced than it was that many years ago. But I, I think that your story is not uncommon. I think a lot of music education students, if they have any sort of um, exposure to working with individuals with disabilities, it's typically outside of music education. Most programs now, I think, require some sort of um, like special education course, but it's typically housed outside of the School of Music or outside of the music program. There are a couple of schools where that's changing. I mean, um, I did my PhD in Northwestern and at Northwestern, we, we took that class and we brought it into the School of Music. So um, Dr. Sarah Bartolome, who um, is on faculty at Northwestern, taught a similar class when she was at LSU and then brought it to Northwestern. And it, it really takes this idea of what it's like. It takes that sort of special education lens and puts it within the context of music education. Um, we at Northwestern, we partnered the students with a school, um, a therapeutic day school in the neighborhood. So the students had an opportunity to not only learn about content in the classroom, but also um, have an opportunity to, to work with individuals with disabilities, um, which was like incredibly valuable. We've had, um, you know, several cohorts go through it now and they all spoke about the value of that. And more than anything, um, it changing their perceptions of individuals with disabilities and like the concept of what they are able to do. Um, so when it comes down to that gap piece, I think for me, that's a really, um, so I am really interested in how we begin to shift that to um, having that course or having that experience exist in all music education learning. Um, I, I am really, I'm really interested in even shifting it away from it existing as a single class, although I think there is some value in that. And I think understanding, um, I sort of like live in this like dual space. I think that there is some, some importance in sort of understanding some of the commonalities that might exist for particular diagnoses. Um, but I, I would personally, in like my pie in the sky world, I would love to see us talking about it more uh, throughout all of our methods courses, for example. Um, 
in the work, every, every class I ever teach, I always talk about universal design for learning, um, which is sort of a framework of thinking about ways of removing barriers to teaching and learning curriculum, the environments to make it accessible for a wide variety of learners, not just individuals with disabilities, but um, anybody who um, has a particular learning style, it just sort of broadens the learning space into a way that makes it more accessible. And I sort of, my like tiny little inroad is that I teach that every time I teach a course. Um, I didn't teach it in freshman colloquium, but only because we ran out of time. Um, but I put it everywhere all the time. And it's sort of like my tiny little piece of, be, of being able to say like, we can be thinking about this constantly. Like it, it, we don't have to like isolate it to a special space. It gets to be in everything that we talk about all the time. And so I think that there's, um, I'm just going to keep preaching that and hopefully people will start to listen to me about it. Um, I think if I, if it's something that I can start making happen in my work, um, similar to like what's happened at LSU and what's happened at Northwestern, you know, those programs become models of how other schools can do it. I think um, Butler is also kind of doing some of this. They're bringing, they've brought that class into their, um, they've brought that class into their program and it, it just, it changes the way that students begin to think about teaching individuals, um, not just individuals with disabilities, but just recognizing that everyone is exceptional in their own way. You know, uh, the point I always make when I talk about this with my students is that uh, um, if you run out, if you were in a school with like one band, which is not the end of like, that's a lot of schools and a student transfers in and it's their junior year and they've never had a minute of music before they got there and they show up in your band, they're an exceptional learner in your classroom. And like there is a, um, they are at a disadvantage uh, because they haven't had all of those prior experiences and how would you address that? And it's really no different than if a person has a physical or cognitive disability, it's just that how we think about it is different. And so kind of shifting that thinking for me is really important. It's gonna be a slow process. Everything about changing anything in academia is like slow, but if we just keep making bad noise about it and slow and steady, things start to change. But I like what you said earlier also, it couples with that, the idea of you were asking students to do things because you had no bearing or idea of what they could or couldn't do because there's, there's some element and I, I tell students this all the time that I'll try things and they say, well, I don't know if this will work. And I said, I don't really know either. I kind of, I thought it looked interesting. And I said, let's try it. And I didn't really research farther because if I go long enough, I can find someone that'll tell me it won't work. And like it, and it's, it's a good point that I feel like a lot of the limitations all over the place, whether it be, and you don't even have to do it from a, a, um, a difference in learning structure, but you could do visual and auditory learners and things like that. If you, if a class says I'm visual learners, you might never teach them one way. So I like the idea of just include it and then try and see what happens because it's, I think we, we relegate and we make assumptions that things won't work very frequently. A hundred percent. Like it's our, um, it's sort of human nature. We, um, we, as, it, particularly as a society, we tend to be deficit focused. Like education is built from like a deficit perspective. Like we, our children come to us and they don't know anything. So we have to give them all the information, right? Um, and uh, one of the big tenets of like disability studies and disability studies in education is to assume competence 
and assume ability, um, which is something that like going back to that early story, like it was something I started doing. I didn't have like the language for it yet, but um, I really, I really got to this place where it almost became fun for me to like, I'm, I'm just going to assume you can do this, like, which everybody was like constantly telling me that that wasn't going to work. And I have this personality that like, if you tell me that I can't do something, then I'm probably going to try it anyway, just because you told me I couldn't do it. Like, it's just, I can't help it. <laughs> so um, I, but like it, over and over and over again, I saw the advantages of it and, you know, it didn't always work full disclosure, 100%. There were times that I tried something and a kiddo super melted down in my classroom and everybody learned something from that. But, um, I think more often than not by assuming the competence of those individuals, we, uh, growth happened. And that is what we want as teachers all the time. Right. If the change needs to happen, where do we think the change needs to kind of be ignited from? The change as far as... Making the conversation more normalized and um, not having it be a separate class of teaching students with disabilities or learning disabilities and then go that route. How do we make it more normalized? It's such a great question. Um, and I think, uh, I, like, I don't want to put you on the spot here a little bit, but I think so much of it is like, it, it exists in, it exists in our like implicit understandings of how the world is. So like, even that idea of normalized and normalization is like, it's a statistic, but it really is like a belief about everything, like coming to the center of what we know is normal. Mm-hmm. And I think it, there are a lot of scholars and advocates who are pushing to sort of change the way that we think about education. And I think I think it's going to take like a revolution <laughs> as much as I would love to say like it would be, um, you know, like we could we could like make the change in, uh, you know, a few strong voices in music education. But I think I to truly make a change, I think it's going to be more than just music education. It's going to be more than just parent voices. I think it's going to take a broader collective of people recognizing sort of the, the ableistic nature of education in the first place in the lack of space that we have made for different types of learners and different, um, the different ways that people approach education. Um, I don't think it's impossible. And I do think that there are rumblings. I think, I think a lot of it will need to come from families, unfortunately, which shouldn't be their burden. Um, But I think it takes, you know, similar to this conversation we're having now, it takes people who've had experiences with this space and recognize the marginalization and recognize the disadvantages that are existing to, to make others aware of it. Because I think, uh, ableism is so prevalent in our culture that we're not even aware of it. Um, there's a scholar who refers to it as like a permissible prejudice because it's so prevalent in our language, in our ways of being that to, to recognize that it exists, it's like kind of, it's hard to even see it because we're so steeped in it. Um, so I, I wish that it was just a matter of like, if we organized a meeting and baked some cookies, we could make a change. But I think, 
I think it's a lot bigger than that. It's a, sometimes it feels daunting and sometimes it feels exciting to me because I think like, I think that there is a chance that there, we are seeing a shift in education now. I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful that we are starting to see more people asking questions, more people pushing back, more people challenging the status quo in ways that we haven't seen before. And I'm really hopeful that that means that there will be some lasting change in education. Stay tuned. Yeah. Um, as we kind of get to the end of our time together, the one building off of that that you just mentioned, this idea of there, there's hopefully a change coming, but it may be not, it might not be here quite yet. If you were a teacher that particularly I'm thinking of a pre-service teacher who maybe is starting to enter the field and um, they're entering the field maybe less prepared in this area than they had intended to be. If you were in that boat, where would be your first few places to turn for support or resources or just like a, a life raft? That's a good question. Um, the thing I always recommend to any practicing teacher is to make friends with the team of people who work with your students with diagnoses. So the special education team, the additional service providers in your school, um, those are going to be the humans who are going to be able to offer the most support immediately. Uh, they're the ones who have worked with your students individually, um, who can offer you recommendations for how best to support them in the classroom. Um, that, to me, that's always like your first stopping point. Um, there are a lot of really great resources actually in music education. Um, some, some really great scholars have done some good work um, providing uh, uh, books and there are some articles sort of offering best practices and suggestions for working with students with diagnoses in your classroom. Um, Alice Hamill and Ryan Harrigan have written a couple of books that are really great. Uh, Alessandro and Mary Adamek have written one that is really useful. Um, I'm happy to like send you the list of those resources if you need to put them somewhere. Um, that would be awesome. I, put them on your um, on the the F flat page so yeah. people can access those. That would be awesome. Yeah, because I think that those um, those are really great tools. If you're like, I just am struggling in this space. I don't know what to do. Like those are a couple, those are ones that I've used in my classrooms and that I refer other students to using. Um, Judith Jellison wrote a great book called Including Everyone, which I also recommend to everybody because um, it really comes at this idea of that assuming competence and recognizing that uh, teaching and learning in the music classroom should be accessible to everybody. And we really do a disservice when we sort of see um, our individuals with disabilities as less than in that space. And so that's, it's a little more philosophical than it is practical, but I think it's a really useful way if you are a person who's sort of drowning in the space to, to be able to take the information that you're gonna get from lots of people, but also sort of like find your own philosophy in that also um being the person who can like stand there in the storm of everyone being like that student can't do that and you'd be the person that's still able to say yeah but let's try yeah. let's just see first because i think sometimes it's scary particularly if you're new in the field to have all of these people around you say like they can't do that and to be able to like stand in the force of that and say i'm gonna give them a chance to try that's awesome. Thank you very much for uh, those. And we'll definitely, we'll link the resources if, um, as we kind of 
wrap up. Thank you again for hanging out with us and spending the morning with us, depending on when people are listening to this. But um, if people wanted more of you, Dr. Draper, any of your research or do you have a Twitter? Do you have anything of those? Any of that? I am like the old the oldest young person you've ever met. Like I don't have a Twitter. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> um, I have an email address and anyone I say all the time, like I am so happy to answer questions. I, I have, I mean, I don't know all of the answers. I, you know, I, and I can't know all of the things, but often if I can like spend five or 10 minutes with you and you can explain the situation to me, I can, we can talk through some possible strategies that you can use. And for me, um, having worked with other educators who helped me in that way, I am a thousand percent super happy to do that for anybody who would ever need that work. So if somebody has a question or you, you're struggling with a situation, send me an email. I We can have like a 10 minute Zoom and I'm really happy to talk through it with you. Um, that's in my mind, that would be way more useful than like you tweeting at me and my giving you sort of like a loose answer via Twitter back, like if that's even how it works. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. And like, truly like it, that's the, one of the best parts of my job. Like I have an opportunity to support educators in their spaces anywhere. And I would love to do that if someone needed it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much again. We appreciate it. Thank you.